and welcome to Nice Jewish Fangirls, a podcast where three Orthodox women discuss all of the wonderfully nerdy things that we are obsessed with. My name is Michal Shek, and I'm your host, and I'm joined by my wonderful co-hosts, Tamar Herman. Hello. And SM Rosenberg. Hi. So, today, we are obviously in the, uh, we're, we're about to start heading into the high holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. Um, pronounced variably, depending on when and where your Judaism uh, originates. Um, but yeah, so we are, we decided to talk about forgiveness in this week's episode, which definitely might have some crossover with our episode from last year about atonement. Um, but we didn't want to quite tread that exact same path. Uh, so we're kind of going to talk about the flip side this year. Okay, so let's pivot to our current obsessions. Um, this week, SM, why don't you go first? Okay, um, my current obsession, um, I was deciding between a few things as usual, but I decided to go with, I guess, somewhat unconventional obsession, but I'm kind of obsessed with um, my Kindle e-reader interface. Like, I only recently have started using my Kindle to actually read tons of things. Well, mostly because I can download lots of fanfic onto my Kindle and read it. And it's so much better than reading it on an internet tab and having to scroll forever. Um, And I discovered that I actually really like reading on my e-reader and it has kind of taken over from paper books um, I have barely read any paper books in the past, like, several months. It's really sad because I have all of these books that I still am not reading because I just really like my e-reader. And the reason that I like it so much, aside from being able to download fanfic, is just I find the interface surprisingly effortlessly educational in the sense that whenever there's all those little pesky words that you you know what they mean from context, but you've never actually known what the definition is and what they really mean. Um, You can just highlight it and it doesn't take you to a different tab or there's some sound out there. Um, It doesn't take you to a different tab and open a whole new window. It just has this tiny little pop-up window on the bottom that doesn't even block out the words of of the book that you're reading. And it takes you to the dictionary, and if you swipe, it takes you to the Wikipedia entry, and if you swipe, there's also a translation option. Um, So, like, I can look up definitions of all these words without having to open a new tab and go to a dictionary or type in define blah, blah, blah. Um, And so I feel like I, I just feel like I have a better handle on my own vocabulary now. Uh, And there's just also, if there's something... Um, abbreviated, there's some kind of uh, acronym or something that I don't recognize, I can highlight that, and sometimes the dictionary definition will define it, otherwise Wikipedia often has, you know, this can stand for X, Y, Z, and gives you a little bit of a list, and you can figure it out from there, Um, and again, no need to open a new tab, get distracted by, you know, the internet, Um, it's just a tiny little window right there on your page, and it's so helpful. And when there's, you know, a word or two in a foreign language that you don't understand, um, or there's a whole bunch, like I was reading something that had a whole 
whole sections in Italian. And like the translations were in footnotes at the end or something, but I didn't feel like flipping all the way through. And I obviously wasn't going to learn Italian in the next two seconds. So I could highlight the whole passage and it immediately in the translation box, it popped up and I was like, this is amazing. I am living in the future. So I actually really like e-readers now. And yeah, so I'm just putting in my little obsessive vote for people to try out e-readers if you've been reluctant to try. Um, I don't know how Nook works. I don't know other e-readers, but my Kindle Fire has this interface and I am a big fan. Okay, so here's my problem with e-readers. And it's very mm-hmm. specific to this podcast problem. Can't use it on Shabbos. Yes. <laughs> yes. Someone, someone came up with, I don't know, a Grumma e-reader or something that every rabbi in the world was like, yes, it's not a sir. Like, great. That'd be great. I mean, there has, I mean, personally, I think there are like two things in the world that are really stupid that are not okay for Shabbos. And that's umbrellas because they're not <laughs> And I really think that like, Whoever understood like technology so poorly that if you, you know, like if there was a way to put a phone on like Chavez mode so that it never changes like the level of battery that you're using, like if you can't use, you know, noise or video or something, it's just like not stick, And that's a thousand percent why nobody would ever consider this. But like just make a Chavez Kindle or something somehow. There's no way to do it and nobody would ever do it. But I think that like there could be a way. I yeah, just it would be like, amazing. I just think and, it's silly. Yeah, I used to, I I used to do all like pretty much all of my reading would be on Shabbos and holidays, and now I find that like because I find this interface so intuitive, and because I uh, and because honestly the 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 Kindle is lighter and easier to hold and without having to hold it open, you know, to hold a book open or to worry about turning the pages or what if, when you put it down or whatever. Um, and I can digitally bookmark wherever I'm up to. Um, so because of that, I've been reading a lot just on my commute more than I had been before. So much more. Like, I've been falling behind on so many podcasts because I've been reading. <laughs> and I'm like, this is so cool. I guess because I don't have a commute, the only time I do read, it, like, books is on Shabbos anyway. But I just, yeah, I don't think yeah. I'll ever be, a, I don't think I'll ever be an e-reader person because I just want my books for Shabbos always. Like, books are for Shabbos. I don't know when non-Jews read Camus. I agree. Mm. Um, or non, or not Shabbos. Observant. Yeah, you I'm know. not really an e-reader. I mean, I had one for, like, a little bit when I was, a, like, a publishing intern because they just send you manuscripts and stuff and you just have to be able to read it. But... And, and, and I mean, I think like, there's no shame in it. Like whatever helps you read is good, you know? Um, but yeah, between the Shabbos thing and the, like getting another device that I would have and, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm into it. Wait, wait, I hope I mean, I have like, sorry, I just don't want anyone to think that I'm like shading e-readers. Like I read on my phone all the time, all day Mm -hmm. long. And I read a lot of stuff on my phone. But I just, like, for books, like, the practical Shabbos purposes, it's when I read. Like, I, I won't get an e-reader just because I will never really use it. Well, moving on from the uh, machlokas of e-readers, I guess, um, what is your current obsession, Tamar? 
Mine is a book that pissed me off a lot, but I'm still very happy it came out. I read Sherwood Smith's A Sword Named Truth. I don't know if anybody here has read Sherwood Smith's stuff. She's a fantasy writer. She's known probably mostly for her YA, um, most notably the Crown Duel series, like duology, and also her Inda series, which is sort of YA, except YA that's like 800 pages of world building in each of the four or five. How many books are there in that series? Anyway, nobody actually needs to hear me talk about this story, except uh, you're going to hear for like a quick three minute rant from me about why that she is a great writer who terribly needs to be sat down and told you need to edit your story. Pretty much Sherwood Smith is a writer who I discovered when I was in middle school and I love, love, love her work. I love, love, love her world building. She's created several series that kind of lead into each other. But the problem is, and this is the big problem, like, and this is the big problem that really sets aside. I do think this is like an editor thing. And also a writer thing, but more an editor thing. Someone like Brandon Sanderson, who writes all these really complex storylines that, you know, there are similar, like there are things woven into them, but there's not like, um, you know, a plot point that you're just like, okay, well, when are you writing that book? Like, it's not like each, each Brandon Sanderson series is, is blended together to some degree because they're all in the same universe and some characters reoccur and some themes reoccur. but in this one, it's like she wrote a book a decade and a half ago leading up to this one that just came out. And there was 16 other books in between then, each doing that. But all of them have like, you know, a certain point in the book where it's just like, oh, I can't tell you anything. You have to wait until that book comes out in a decade and a half. So I'm sure she didn't plan for her book to come out like a decade and a half later. And the problem is, is that she now has about 10 different series of books in this one book. And you can't keep track of the characters. You can't keep track of the plot points because you haven't read them in so long. There are so many extra characters. <laughs> like There are characters who you don't care about and they're main characters. There is one really, really annoying what I can only think. Sorry, Sherwood Smith, I really do love you if you ever listen to this. Like, I think it must be a self-insertion character who is the most annoying piece of crap on the planet. Like, She is the most annoying character I think I've ever read ever because her whole purpose seems to be just to be annoying um <laughs> she is so annoying and she's very clearly supposed to be like this very uh at least in her series like she's supposed to be like she's the main character like she's a, a girl from the uh like earth who ends up on this other planet in another like universe and she's like falls in with this crew of princesses it's like this whole thing and she's the main character in that series one of the main characters in that series and she is so annoying in this book and every single, I, I started a conversation in Olaf and everybody else agreed was just like, this character needs to die. Like this character, like not die, but this character is so annoying. I don't care for pretty much most of the characters. All I want to know is this book she wrote five years ago, how that relates to this, what is going on. And I think this is going to be a trilogy. So it's not even going to do that. And you have, I think this book is about, Hold on, I have it sitting next to me because it's so big. I can't put it on my bookshelf because I don't know where to put it. Okay, so it's 639 pages, which I think is less than at least one Harry Potter. But it's 639 pages of really poorly edited content. So you have all these plot lines, all these storylines going on. And, you know, if, if every single word was building some action or describing some character's emotions or something, that'd be fine. Half the time it feels like this stuff could be cut. Half of this description could be cut. 
half of this world building is like, well, why do we need this other plot line that you didn't ever introduce in your 10 dozen other books? I'm just making up numbers at this point. Um, like, why? Like, you need, like, you need an editor just to be like, no, stop it. Like, I get that you thought of this storyline, you know, I think she, she says in like all of her books that she thought of this storyline when she was a child. So, and she's definitely at least in her sixties. So, okay. So let's say she thought of this 50 years ago. You had 50 years to develop it. Why are you still this wordy and this like, I kind of want to say like grow up and cut it down because it's so unbearable. And every single person I've spoken to is like, yes, it's really nice to get some like conclusion and figure out what was going on in all those other books. But it's like, you needed to, to not do it this way. And it's just so unbearable. And it's so sad because all I want to know is like support these characters and support this author and get through this storyline. Like I want to know what is happening. And it just, it just doesn't happen. It's like, one book, I'm just like the book that was most recently tied into this ended with like people just disappearing. That was a, I think also another 700 page book. Literally, the whole point of that book was to tell you, yeah, historically, in another like 600 years before the present day characters are taking place in, some army had some stuff going on, historic political stuff, and um, they disappeared into time and space. And that was the whole point of that book. And she wrote it really well, and there was a lot of really interesting characters and stuff, but the whole point of it was that end game. Like, the end game of all her other books was leading to this series, and the series is unbearable to read because it's so poorly, like, edited, or because she has so much she wants to get into it that she's just overflowing into it, and it's, like, <laughs> it is so unbearable, and I really wanted to love it so, so much, and I do, like, I'm so happy that, I, that it's finally happening, but it's just, like, it's, it's like if every episode of Game of Thrones was the last season or every <laughs> or it's like if it, it's like yeah the book i read when i was in middle school is like the first season and then like then every other every other book i've read and every other series has like maybe the first few and then like suddenly it started getting to like the fourth and fifth and sixth seasons where it started not being great and then this is the seventh season and it's gonna be two more seasons of this i think at least two i don't know how many more books are in this one actually it's just called like the rise of the lion series book one and I, I think she said on her site at least book two is coming out i don't know if two are coming out so this book is about the heroes and the next book is about the villains i don't care about the villains all i want to know is how the heroes beat the villains or what's going on and just get me to the end and i just want to know already i'm so frustrated <laughs> it, is, it is like and these, these are are these ya books so oh, that's actually another problem and you'll see like I mean, I don't think you care if you haven't read the series, but like on Goodreads and in Olaf, everyone's just like, she can't decide what she wants it to be because all her characters, it's like a plot point that they all stop their aging because adults are the problem. And so like, they're all stuck around 13 to 15, I think. And so like one of the characters, one of the main characters, he's, a, he's, he's just annoying. I mean, he's okay. I think he'd be a better guy if he aged um like he he's just like oh i understand you know sexual attraction but i don't really feel it but i could feel that i could be feeling it if i let myself age but if i <laughs> age then the villains will take me as a serious threat rather than a young kid king like it's like oh my god just stop um this is driving me crazy <laughs> like there's like it's like she had yeah so <laughs> It's really dry. Yeah, so the reason I asked, the reason I asked is because I find that, you know, YA tends to, you know, be better paced than that because 
is writing for a younger audience who isn't gonna, you know, put up necessarily with so, all the bullshit that so adult audiences will. The problem is, is that some of these books are very clearly YA books, and some of them are very clearly not YA books. But mm-hmm. there's no rhyme or reason. It's not like, but like, and you need to read them all to get to this. So like, there are ones that I skipped, but I've read at least one in each series, and like, I don't feel like I missed out on them because I didn't like those and. The character I don't like is in that one. Ugh, the CJ Diary series are terrible. Um, but like I, I have read primarily most of the main ones, and they're like quasi. Even this one's like quasi YA. Like it's it's written on. I don't even know. Like I really think she just needs a better editor, and she needs to decide what she's doing because it's just like it is unbearable at this point. It is it's so unbearable to be a fan of these this book. I wasn't gonna say series or universe. Like it's like really, I really hate comparing especially female writers like I really hate comparing her but in my brain the only thing I can do is compare her to Brandon Sanderson and how badly she has failed in comparison to him mm-hmm. like really I feel really terrible saying that but like there are such good books in her series but I mean I think she's really and I do think that this is an industry thing I think she's really struggled because she hasn't had good editing like she hasn't been a, with a publishing house for a while which could be I don't know if that's like her books aren't popular enough or you know she's hard to work with or something but she hasn't been with a solid editor or publishing house, I think, years. And so I think all of her books kind of are haphazard. Like this one is put out by this one and this one's put out by Tor and this one was put out by this publishing house. Like, I think she really suffered for that. So some of her books have been marketed as YA when they're not. And some of them have not been marketed as YA when they are. So I find I usually find her books in the fantasy section, but I have found them in YA and it's ones that shouldn't be there sometimes in those either one. So it's like, I think, and from other, the very few people I know who read Sherwood Smith, like everybody pretty much feels this way. It's like, I understand if you had a few YA books and then a few, you know, more mature books, and then they led to a more mature series, but that's not what happened. It's like some are YA and some are mature and some in the same and this is the same universe. And so she's putting it all together. And I think it's re- I think it really is a sign of like the bad editing process, whatever that she's gone through, mm-hmm. however it came about. And it's like painful because she obviously has really great ideas. Yeah, and I really like, yeah, I really like her storyline and her universe. And I want to get to the end of the story, but it's like dragging. It's It's been going on. Like when was the first one? Um, so like one of the main characters in this book was published in 2007, but I think her first book series, yeah, was published in 1997 and then a sequel. Oh, sorry. A prequel to that was in 2008. That prequel is woven into this one. So if you didn't read that one or that 1997 book, you have no idea what those chapters are about. Then she had another series that began in 2006 that continued through 2009 and then she had like a prequel to oh sorry she had a sequel to that in 2012 and then between 2012 and now she had like one two three four five like six seven different books that sort of related to this but didn't really and now you have this one and it's just like how did this happen like it's just it's it's really and i'm looking at her wikipedia page it's like this one was self-published. This one was Firebird. This was Daw Books. This one was Bookview Cafe, which I think might be self-published. Then this one is Norlina. This one is Viking. And this one I have 
is this? Oh, it's Daw again. And like all of her Daw ones are these huge, massive tomes that is really hard to understand what's going on in them because nobody's editing them. Like, I really think it's just her editor sucks or something. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, I've like ranted for like 15 minutes. I'm so mad. I'm so disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> so disappointed. I've waited since, yeah, since like fifth grade for this story to come about. And it's terrible. It's like, it's not terrible. It's just, I can't get through it properly. Like I did get through this book and all I, and then, oh my God, the final page is so fucking annoying. <laughs> the final page is literally like, so it's like narrated by somebody and you don't know who's narrating this whole book. So it starts and ends with the person saying something. And then it goes into another part of the narrative where one of the characters meets somebody and that's it. It's like, it's not like, it's not like in Brendan Sanderson where somebody is like meeting someone halfway through the book and it's like, oh, so cryptic. And this helps them like think out something. This is like the book ended and then it was like, and here's this mysterious guy named Adam and that's it. I was like, did you watch the Marvel movies too many times or something? Did you watch the Guardians? The, was it Guardians <laughs> the Galaxies? Like conclusion. To, that's what it felt like. I was just like, Adam. Like it was, it was a post credit scene, but it. It didn't lead anywhere. Yeah, it was like the post-credit scene that didn't leave you waiting for more. It was a post-credit scene that made you think, "What the hell was that?" Like, but not in the good way. In yeah, the, why like, did I sit through the credits for that? Yes, it was like, <laughs> "Why is this here?" It was, yeah, that's what it was. It was a credit scene that the post-credit scene that just is like not funny and had no point. And I don't know what it was. And I'm sure you know I'll figure it out in the next book that he's probably some big bad villain or something. But like, it didn't hint to that it didn't it didn't say anything like it just was like here's adam like i don't know who adam is and i don't really care like could you have ended on a more interesting note like i think it's an editor thing or she like didn't know where i don't know i'm really so frustrated (laughs) i hate that this is what's happening to this series i i have much empathy for you tomorrow (laughs) sorry no, it's okay. Yeah, I've I've been there. I think uh yeah, I mean, I I I'll, clearly there's something crazy going on with the publishing situation here, but definitely like editoritis is something that happens to some authors when they get really, you know, they get more successful and like I remember reading Robin McKinley's early books which are like slim and tiny and then her later books which just like kind of meandered around. Um, but yeah, I'm sorry. I hope, I hope the next book is brilliant and everything falls into place. It won't be. It's going to be about the villains. And I don't like, it's like, I don't care about the villains. I want to know what happens. Like, it's really, that's what it is. Like if she just tweeted at this point, what was going on, that'd be great. And I'm just (laughs) like, literally just tell me at this point, like, I just want to know where they went. What is North Sunder doing except being jerks? Um, tell me what happened with Flavic. Like, I'm, <laughs> I just am really bad. Like, it's like, also, I don't know what year we're in anymore. Actually, I do know what year we're in. Um, but I, so the first book, this is the most annoying part of everything. The first book, the one from 1997, the one that I liked and fell in love with when I was a kid, it takes place after this book. So you know everything's okay because, like, they go to a court that one of these people is a queen of then. And it's like, well, we know she exists and she's not dead and the world is continuing on. So that means the big bads get defeated. So you already know the punchline, which is like that who's alive, I think. And it's just like, it's just like, just literally just tell me. It's, it's like there was such bad planning in the publishing or what it's like, 
I don't know, it'd be like publishing Lord of the Rings out of order and then The Hobbit 20 decades later. Cool. Okay. <laughs> I'm like right now. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Just want to like pat you on the shoulder and go. I know. Oh, how about you, Michal? Well, my current obsession, um, I, I actually uh, struggled with this a little bit because I, you know, I was away this past week um, on a on an extremely busy whirlwind experience. Um, so part of me was like, maybe I'll just do like oyster cards from London because those things like just work really well and it's just you just tap it it's like those are so good I know you don't even have to slide anything it's like crazy um but I'm gonna swoop in and take something that I feel like I must have talked about before so this might be a repeat but um Bon Appetit's YouTube channel uh specifically Claire Saffitt's um um what's it Gourmet Makes show is just like the most delightful, ridiculous, fantastic thing ever. And I, you know, it's she's she's a pastry chef and she basically tries to make gourmet versions of various candy and snack foods and stuff. And it's and sometimes it goes very badly. <laughs> and it's just extremely wonderful to watch. And the entire crew in the Bon Appetit test kitchen become like characters in this story and I like really I get such delight from watching all of them together and they they each have their personalities and they have their little like quirks so one of the guys has a really good sense of smell and it just becomes this running joke throughout every single video they do um and in the recent video Claire was talking to him and she was like oh I'm making this thing and he was like oh that's what I smelled and nobody even reacted and I was like oh you guys missed that opportunity it was perfect um yes but I I think it's it's really the answer to I mean I, I will definitely admit to watching many hours of BuzzFeed videos and tasty uh videos um but this is like grown-up stuff like it's actual real food it's real chefs and they still have a sense of humor and are really fun to watch and amazing. So definitely check them out. Um, Okay. So we are going to move on now into our main subject, which as I said, was forgiveness in fiction. Um, This is actually, I think we all kind of realized it's actually a little harder to think of um, than we necessarily expected. I thought like, when I, when I came up with the idea, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, whatever. We, we have atonement, so, like, we'll have forgiveness, obviously. But there aren't – I mean, I personally could only come up with, like, one solid um, example. And I don't know about you guys. Did anyone – did you guys find anything that, like, jumped out at you? Well, I have my one very solid Babylon 5 example. And I'm blanking on everything else. Right. <laughs> um, so before we get into the specifics, though, I do just want to start by noting that, um, you know, forgiveness, I think, has a bit of a, has a lot of baggage, I think, in stories and in uh, Western culture. Um, 
but in terms of, you know, we're, we're not necessarily looking here for like forgiveness to follow like Judaism's terms of forgiveness, but I think it's worth noting that, um, forgiveness in Judaism is, is not unilateral. Uh, it's not supposed to be the type of thing where you just like, you know, turn the other cheek and just, you know, forgive because it's the right thing to do. Um, it actually relies a lot on the offending person, um, actually making amends and doing that atonement. So it's really kind of a two-part process. Um, and there are three steps traditionally, um, in, uh, Jewish forgiveness, which is, or becoming, you know, forgivable, which is that the person accepts the wrong that they did. They apologize sincerely and they, um, are determined to change and not repeat the offense. Um, and those are the three qualifications to have somebody, um, to, to actually forgive somebody. And without that, you kind of don't have to do that. Um, which is, which is fun. The, the example I thought of, and this isn't necessarily like an explicit forgiveness scene, but, um, it's part of the, of, you know, my favorite thing to talk about, Megan Whelan Turner's, uh, Queen's Thief series. And, they, I don't want to give away too much, but basically there's something very violent and upsetting and life-changing that happens between two characters. And at the end of this particular book, uh, they, they move past it. And it's not necessarily an I forgive you, but it definitely is a, a transformative um, moment between the two of them where you know, the character who has, who has done this thing really confronts the fact that she has hurt the other person really, really deeply. And, you know, and, and, and that there is no like exact reparation for that, you know? Um, and I just find that scene really powerful because he is, you know, he decides to be willing to move on from that. And, um, you know, with effort on her part and with kind of cognition on both their parts that this was a a huge thing um, and and incredibly awful and significant for both of them. Um, yeah, tomorrow, you know, I'm 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 assuming you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, I was waiting to see how you would describe it. Yeah, yeah. The problem with these books is that there's something major that happens at the beginning of the second book that you can't talk about because it's kind of is a huge spoiler, but it's everything else is predicated on that. Anyway, read the Queen's Thief books by Megan Whalen Turner, please. Um, yeah, I don't know. How do, do you do you think that fits? Yeah, it does fit. Um, I do. I mean, I think, I think with her books, there's a lot that's happening off screen even even when it doesn't seem like that so like maybe i mean i think that i think that the person that thing was done to did forgive and i do think that the other person even if i think in the situation even if they didn't apologize the the understanding was that it was something that they regret so like i don't know if that character who is so prideful would say literally the words i'm sorry that i did that but more kind of expect the other to understand why they did that. But I think that the other was actively doing forgiveness. Like, I actually think that maybe this wasn't atonement as much as acceptance by the other of what happened. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Like, I don't think that she, you said she, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I do think that she had regret about what she did and I do think that 
you know, in in after after the after what happened, like depending based on the plot, that like she wouldn't have not done it if she had the chance again. But I think based on what was going on at the time in the books, I think she felt that was what she had to do. So I don't think like her, even if she did apologize, I don't think it was like, I'm sorry that I did that. It'd probably be more like, I'm sorry that I did that to you. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, but it's interesting also because that character has, I I agree, not 100% like a, you know, I've I've done bad and now I'll do better um, type of arc, but she has kind of a personal reckoning of what what taking these kind of actions are doing to her, um, and that's definitely like a journey that, that that character takes. So I think that's also part of their their arc of I guess you know apology and and forgiveness because it's not it's not in a vacuum. It it kind of represents a general uh, understanding on her part that, that things should not continue as, as they have been. And her, her tendon, her, like the actions that she has taken to protect herself are, may have been necessary, but also have been very corrosive. And yeah, I think it's a really interesting journey in, in that, like between the two of them. Um, because the person who is hurt is definitely no saint either and has plenty to um, apologize for um, on his own and which he doesn't do actually uh, he, he's he's kind of like uh, deliberately unrepentant which so is... I think that I think that's kind of it I think like she would never apologize to him because he would never apologize for anything so I think it's more like accepting the other's actions every time like I think that they might actually be a bad example of this I know, but I couldn't think of anything else. And, and now, I, I do think there are points of like real forgiveness in there. Like the, there's, there's something, there's one moment when they're in the, in the a book, in the book, um, the queen of Atolia, when they are really forced to confront like their, their, their mutual damage that I, I do think constitutes forgiveness. Um, but yeah, that's this is more evidence of the fact that this these are it's hard to find um examples of this. So SM, what is what is your Babylon 5 example? Regale us with the I I feel like there's a Babylon 5 answer for everything, which is pretty yeah. great. So <laughs> So Babylon 5, which I have talked about probably numerous times on this podcast. What? No. Oh, this is the first I'm hearing of it. No, never. Yeah, (laughs) I know. It's some obscure show. I don't know why I'm talking about it, like, out of the blue. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So, Babylon 5, um, as I mentioned before, it was one of those shows that, unlike Sherwood Smith's (laughs) stuff, was plotted out in advance um, as a five-year arc. And so there are these gorgeous character arcs that just progress and rise and fall. And it's really easy thinking back on the show to remember um, what happened because everything is so cohesive. Um, And things that happened in early seasons have repercussions very consistently down the line. So it's like, you know, like when I, when I watch like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I forget what happened from season to season because there are no repercussions really, you know, on the, you know, there, there are some very basic things that, that, you know, 
come back and are referenced and whatever, but like for the most part, the events of previous seasons don't have any relevance to the current season. And it works fine on I would argue that works that, but not the time. Go on. I I mean like there there are things that as it's as the show has gone on, yes, but there are like there are so many things that happened in earlier seasons of Ages of Shield and I'm just like, wait, what happened? That happened? I need to rewatch this show because literally I have no memory of it and it's not relevant to me enjoying the rest of the season. But I feel like so Babylon 5, everything is just, it meshes together and it is one coherent whole in a lot of ways. Um, and so, yes, back to these character arcs. Um, there is one character in particular, Londo Molari, who goes from being like the laughing stock to being kind of basically the arch villain and then becoming this really tragic, truly tragic figure by the end. Um, and none of it feels forced. Everything feels like it follows very logically from like his his weaknesses, you know, and his uh, and his motivations. They all track, and they all make sense for all of his uh, for all of his actions throughout. And his nemesis in the beginning is this. Um, Mondo is a member of the Centauri alien race, and the Centauri are arch nemeses, arch rivals with the Narn race, and they have a very bloody history. The uh, Centauri took over the Narn homeworld um, centuries ago, but the Narn eventually threw them off. Um, and ever since then, you know, there's, there's just, you know, there's so many years of, of blood feuds and they're just, you know, mortal enemies. Um, and Jakar is the Narn ambassador on Babylon 5, which is a diplomatic space station. And Londo is the Centauri ambassador and they lock horns and they can't stand each other. Um, but over the course of the show, they you know, things get really bad between them and gradually through circumstances, things eventually get better between them and they develop respect for each other and they even somewhat become friends. Um, and there is a uh, a scene toward the very, very end in this uh, episode in season five called The Fall of Centauri Prime, I think. And the line is when... Uh, Malari is about to do something extremely self-sacrificing for the good of his people. Um, can't say exactly what it is because spoilers, but he's about to make a very, very significant life-altering choice. Um, and Jakar is with him at the time, and he doesn't know exactly what is on the line, and he doesn't know what Londo is going through, but he senses that you know, there are a lot of factors at work here and that Londo is doing this for important good reasons. Um, and he says to him, um, because over the and, and over the course of the show, the the Centauri Narn conflict has been rekindled and the uh basically Londo at one point greenlighted essentially an attempted genocide against the Narns. Um, and like the entire Narn homeworld had been devastated and all sorts of things. And now um, 
the tables have again turned and the Centauri homeworld is now at risk and it's, you know, the wheel turns and the and everything um comes back around. But um so what Jakar says to him is that I can never forgive your people for what they did to my world, and my people can never forgive your people, but I can forgive you. Um, and I remember thinking similarly about um, something that I heard in an interview with a Holocaust survivor one time um, about how she um, she met, I think, like descendants of some of the Nazis that, you know, had murdered her, her family or, you know, everybody she knew, all sorts of things. And like, and they were deeply sorry. And um, yeah, they obviously hadn't committed the crimes, you know, but they felt responsible. And she said something like about forgiving them. Um, and she said in the interview that it was the forgiveness was a gift that she gave to herself and that it was, you know, it wasn't so much for them, but it was, but it was for herself, but also just like that you can forgive on a personal level. Um, and that doesn't absolve, you know, the crimes of an entire, you know, people. And it doesn't, you know, you can't, you can't forgive for things that weren't committed against you personally, um, but you can, you have the choice. Um, uh, at least you have theoretically the option of forgiving specific people for specific things committed against you. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's what I take from, uh, from that scene and from uh, the Londo Jakar forgiveness arc. And, uh, yeah, watch Babylon 5, everybody. It's really good. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I keep thinking I can almost come up with more ideas of, like, where forgiveness doesn't happen in a mm. lot of my fiction. You know, like, I, I'm actually, like, racking my head for a Harry Potter occasion. But I, I you know, example of this, but... You know, the the only thing I can really think of is Ron um, in, like, one of the greatest scenes ever. Um, <laughs> in, in the Silver Doe chapter uh, in Deathly Hallows, when Ron returns. Um, oh. I know. <laughs> oh, oh. So, yeah, it's when Harry's trying to finally destroy the Locket Horcrux and um, Ron returns and saves him from the frozen lake. And then... Um, and then destroys the Horcrux. And it's... I mean, I have some issues with some parts of Deadly Hallows, but that is not one of them. As I think <laughs> you can probably tell from my voice. Um, but it's... Yeah, I'm actually glad I thought about that because Ron really does apologize. And Ron is truly pretty awful in, like, in earlier parts of that book. Um, you know, and a lot of it, obviously, is he's being influenced by, like, the bit of Voldemort that's being hanging the, the around horse. his neck. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he's still, like, he, if I recall correctly, he does mention that as part of, like, a reason for his behavior, but he doesn't use it as an excuse. 
and he, mm-hmm. you know, takes full responsibility for, you know, the things he's done um, in that context. And I think that's what makes it, you know, so beautiful and what allows him and, you know, Harry forgives him immediately. I think Hermione has a little bit more uh, of a long road. Hermione punches him and calls him a complete arse. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I love that chapter so much. I can't even. Oh, God. And it's like, and the like the three chapters before that are just like the most depressing, ridiculous. Oh, God. Anyway, um, this is not officially a Harry Potter podcast. But, um, yeah. I was just going to say, I just was reading like this really good thread about how like through most of the books from book five on most of what their annoying emotions that are often written as like, oh, they're just annoying tween like teens is probably PTSD. Mm-hmm. It is, that is not incorrect because they have <laughs> gone through a lot. Um, but yeah. Yeah. But in terms of Harry Potter and forgiveness, I think that actually you know book seven really is all of harry finding out dumbledore's flaws and learning to forgive him despite that and like you can um you can argue whether dumbledore deserves forgiveness and like whether you would forgive him you know but it really seems like most of the the book is you know breaking down harry's preconceived notions about dumbledore letting him see who dumbledore really was um, and then there's King's Cross Station, where um, he gets to hear Dumbledore's side of the story and um, learn all the reasons and accept them and forgive and move on. Even though it, it's never, you know, again, never explicit that, you know, Dumbledore is clearly very remorseful about the pain that Harry has suffered, um, but he never, you know... It's never an I'm sorry and I forgive you conversation. Yeah, um, the, the the thing I think that comes closer to that is actually their dialogue in book five when, you know, Harry doesn't explicitly forgive Dumbledore because he's not emotionally, I think, in a place to do that. But Dumbledore is clearly quite repentant and then at the same time quite manipulative in terms of what information he's giving Harry. Um Dumbledore's a great character, guys. He just really is. Um, <laughs> but but it's interesting to me that, like, you know, Harry does forgive Dumbledore for both, I think, the sins that he's committed against him and also the secrets he's kept and, and the, the mistakes he's made in his life. But, you know, Harry never has to forgive Voldemort. You know, there's never a moment where he has to be like, you know, I have to move on from this. And so I forgive you for murdering my parents and half the people I know, you know, but he kind of, he kind of does to Draco. Yes. To Draco. Yes. Um, but I think, you know, and I'm, I'm, I have mixed feelings about that. Although, I mean, he just kind of goes like, he he more feels bad for Draco than like actually forgives him, you know? Yeah. Um, which is why we uh, we're not going to talk about Cursed Child, but there's some interesting. <laughs> I was going to mention. I was going to say. I'm yeah. just saying. So, like, there's more in, forgiveness in there. Yeah. Saying more in. reconciliation, if not forgiveness. Yeah. <laughs> Except on um, the Dumbledore side, the Dumbledore thing is like left totally dangling, and it's okay. So I do, if you don't mind moving off here, I do have <laughs> a very in-text 
apology. Oh my God. Yes. Forgiveness. Share. Forgiveness. I guess that I did. I like was thinking and I was like, this is one, um, pride and prejudice. Uh, Darcy apologizes for sending the letter and Elizabeth's like, don't worry. I don't, I'm not pulling it up. Um, but he's essentially says to her, like, sorry, I was an idiot and started writing the letter like nasty and then you know it was it was nice um if anybody's not read pride and prejudice i don't really know what to say it started off nasty and, it's not <laughs> nice. and um he essentially at one point is just like oh i i know i wrote that letter like in in like a bad mood like he didn't apologize for all his like bs the, the entire time because he clearly thought he was in the right in some things but he did apologize for the way that he spoke to her in the letter and she essentially says like don't worry i understand you better now because of that letter i understand all your past motivations and you know they get married so i mean it 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 is a it's just it's a forgiveness story i think i just really like pride and prejudice (laughs) no that's a good that's a good example um and uh not having read pride and prejudice that's ever uh, yeah no have you ever watched it I, watch the Lizzie Bennett I've Diaries. I've watched the Lizzie okay Bennett Diaries. I, I, I like the Lizzie Bennett okay, Diaries. Can okay, like... you can watch the mini series with Colin Firth. Okay, that's the only Colin... legit I don't version. find it the that Kira interesting. Knightley... Watch the Kieran Knightley one. It is good. Yeah, I did watch yeah. that one. I just don't find it that interesting. No, the, the mini series. <laughs> I'm going to stick with my LBD and move on. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not really an Austin person. Um, I just. Yeah, I I don't really enjoy the books themselves, but um I've I liked that uh adaptation and I liked the Lizzie Bennet diaries. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Tamar. I'm gonna go talk to you. <laughs> Show respect. Um, um but yeah, I was thinking like some other classics also are about forgiveness. I think like we kind of were thinking about just like really fandomy stuff, but we were just discussing like I think I'm pretty sure Scarlet Letter has some forgiveness mm-hmm. with the annoying priest um i think i haven't read it since i was in high school because i hated scarlet letter but i'm pretty sure there's some forgiveness going on between hester and the jerk who who yeah who fathered her child um but i was thinking of one of like a, a romance novel that also had it um and i think it was an enraged marriage by joe beverly um, there's like so much wrong in that book, but in the end, it's like one of the characters like has to leave his wife for a while for something that like maybe he didn't have to do, but he felt he had to like do it for his country and it was really stupid. And he like comes back and has to like show her how sorry he is over like a period of a few months and she essentially forgives him. But it's like doing the work and like putting in the Tasha and then getting the Tasha, putting in the Tashlas and like getting um you know, getting an, uh, a forgiven in return. I don't know. That was that was like really the only thing in fiction that's not like classical fiction that I could think of. Now I'm trying to think if there's anything in Shakespeare. I mean, there are definitely some times where I'm like, why aren't oh. you apologizing? Beatrice and Benedict. Sort of. Yeah, that's yeah. what came to mind. Yeah, that's true. Let's I mean, they're kind of forced thing. into it, but it still counts. I mean, they still end up together. Yeah. So that. Oh, no, um, don't worry. I ship them. Oh, I'm thinking in um, Cassie Clare's series, there's definitely a few moments where characters like have to apologize for being stupid teens to others. <laughs> um, 
I'm trying to yeah. think. Oh, like, um, I don't know if either of you have read any of the Mortal Instruments series, but, mm-hmm. um, like, Alec has to apologize to Clary, the main character. Uh, so pretty much the book is about Clary and Jace and Alec and his sister, and Alec is Jace's best friend, and he's does not like Clary for whatever reasons. I really don't feel like it's a spoiler considering there's not been a TV show and a movie and multiple books after this. But Go pretty much it. pretty much he's um in love with his best friend and his best friend doesn't know he's gay and he's now dating Clary or in love with Clary and Jace's and Alec is kind of jealous of her. So he's like mean to her cuz he thinks he's going to he's going to she's going to take away his best friend who he's also in love with. So like that is like the point and they have like a heart to heart and there's a few other heart to hearts I'm thinking a few others that aren't quite as overt, but like um, the Jewish vampire for some time. Um, Simon, he definitely has a few hearts with other people. Um, also Alec, now that I think about it, he definitely had a, had a heart to heart with Alec that I think revolved around a pop, like forgiveness because um, he hurt his sister's heart. Um, there's a lot of like teenage angst in these. Mm-hmm. I'm sure like Twilight had some apologies. I can't think of any. Yeah, no, this reminds me of, I think I've mentioned it before, about how Arrow, um, Oliver Queen screws up a lot, but part of what keeps me coming back to Arrow is that um, Stephen Amell as uh, Oliver Queen is really good at the apology scenes. Like, there are a lot of apology scenes where he's just, you know, owning up to, I made a mistake, and I should have done X, and I did Y, and that wasn't fair to you, you all this blah, blah, blah. And yeah, not necessarily in the words, you know, the characters don't, you know, necessarily go, I forgive you. I'm sure there have been scenes where they've outright said, you know, I forgive you for that. But it's, it's always like, you know, it's, it's clear that the apologies are accepted um, and the characters move on and they move forward from there. Um, And yeah, so that's always nice. Oh, so there's a good one. Any more like TV ones? Don't know. Oh, what I'm thinking of now is how the thing is, characters just tend to die before they can, you know, because like we've <laughs> talked about the truncated, the truncated atone, atonement arc, you know, and so characters are on their way to to you know starting to fix things and then they die, you know, and like so you can just and then it's like death is the atonement and it's and death is the apology and everybody just kind of has to forgive them because they died um yeah so that happens a lot more often than actual apologies still stupid (laughs) so yeah i also want to talk about um something you brought up sm which is on the meta side you know, we as fans have interesting relationships with the the properties and the stories that we love. Um, and sometimes that can, you know, cross the line into, you know, feeling real feelings about um, the things that, that we're invested in. And, um, you know, I don't, so, know. I don't have any feelings. No, no, totally. Not not fangirls. We're just nice Jewish cool cool girls. <laughs> cool detached. <Yeah. laughs> uh, but yeah, so I you know I I you know coming from like the Agents of Shield fandom, like I've I've gotten caught up in some things where it's like you know this you've character- gotten caught up in things. Oh, I know, right? 
this character hasn't apologized and therefore no matter what they do after you know they can't be forgiven and then on the other hand there's the oh well this character has suffered so much so it doesn't matter if they apologize just for they should just be forgiven by the other characters and you know similarly by the fans anyway um definitely ward who we've discussed oh, before <laughs> yeah he, ward um yeah i mean there was definitely a big kind of thing about like oh well you know we feel so bad for him because he's had xyz sad things happen to him so that kind I didn't of, feel that bad for him. No, <laughs> and you shouldn't because you were smart and reading the show right. But like, there was this idea that like that of itself constituted an apology, and that like the people who were upset at him should feel bad for feeling upset, um, which kind of boggles the mind. Um, but I don't think it's actually uncommon. Like, I think this goes on with. Kylo Ren, you know, in Star Wars fandom of people being like, he's completely unforgivable and versus other people being like, well, no, he's experienced XYZ. So he's just basically on the cusp of forgiveness, no matter what bad stuff he's done. Um, no way. I'm, I'm not getting involved in that conversation, even though I <laughs> brought it up. Um, <laughs> mentally in my, in my mind, I'm just like me, with like a 20 foot stick and I'm still not touching the Kylo Ren thing. <laughs> I'm just like, what happens will happen and I'll deal with it after. Um, but yeah, I mean, how do you guys feel about that? Have you ever been caught up in something like that? Uh, um, I think there's some element of that in the Snape fandom. Yes. You know? Um, Cause like, I mean, there's, there's more to it because like, you know, he did do legitimate heroic acts afterwards but also people just you know they feel bad for him um and so they forgive him for things that he never apologized or atoned for in any way this isn't the same thing and i know this is a conversation about fiction but sometimes k-pop is stranger than fiction and there's this trend right now there's a lot of nasty things that happen in entertainment industries surprise people are terrible and right now there is this trend it's called um apologists i don't know if either of you are familiar with anything no. period but opa is the word that like you used to refer for a girl to an older boy you're familiar with and so fans often will call their faves opa 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 because it's just like it's it's a sh term of endearment like a, a girl will use it to her older brother but she could also use it to her boyfriend or a close friend who's a guy who's older than her it's a term of like endearment and familiar uh familiarity and like based on family stuff, but in K-pop, it's I love you. You're my favorite human being. Um, and there's a lot of bad stuff going on in 2019. And there's a lot of it that's kind of like becoming big news. And then it's fading away and kind of uh, maybe getting swept under the rug. But regardless of that, uh, a lot of their fans and are having a really hard time with it. And a lot of them are trying to say, no, it's just like a, it's like a, you know, uh, it's the media making it bad. It's the government corrupt and they're trying to like find scapegoats and stuff, but they're, they didn't do anything wrong. It's all fake. He didn't say that he did anything wrong. He hasn't, you know, admitted it. It's all, it's just, all just rumors. You can't believe anything. And so that there's now a term in K-pop fandom about uh, pretty much apologists, which are people who are 
opa like they're fans of these opas and they're trying to like wash away their wrongdoing their alleged wrongdoings and it's been something that maybe over the past year has become much more prevalent because definitely you know celebrities are humans too surprisingly so when they do something wrong some of them like I, there's this one um singer that i can think of who it's like a really crappy situation but he is anybody listening to this who knows anything about k-pop is know exactly who i'm talking about even though i really would not like to do this but pretty much he's bigger than most k-pop stars like he is a heavy guy and it, i think he's in 2009 he said something like um like derogatory towards girls who are overweight and like of all the people it was like pop calling kettle black and uh like for for the reference i do like i like i'm a big fan of his band i I like him a lot i think he's grown since then and people can grow and stuff pretty much like anytime he comes up the response is like oh didn't he say that thing about girls even like Mm. even though he did apologize and stuff see i'm like doing the apologist thing right now oh he apologized yeah but it's also like trevor noah did stuff stuff like that right he made a bunch of tweets you know years ago um that were very fat phobic and yeah problematic but he that's not his style of humor anymore and that's not the sort of stuff he does and hopefully not who he is anymore and that's like Mm -hmm. something that i think like it is different than the apologists who are like no he didn't sexually assault someone or set up you know (laughs) yeah prostitution for business dealings it's a whole fun thing right now in k-pop what's all the deep state deep state is framing him it is honestly you'd be surprised i've seen so (laughs) many (laughs) <laughs> or like, oh, they're trying to ruin blah blah blah's career. So this one, whatever, it's it's wild. Um, like it's wild in the K-pop world nowadays. But yeah, there is like this phenomena where people are just um, either so dedicatedly apologizing, like in in advance for these stars and kind of washing away their sins in their minds, like in mass, like massive amounts of fans, and. And, and there's a lot to be said about like fantasy and fandom of you know stars and celebrities and stuff but like um and then the ones who do apologize it's almost like a mockery so like people are just like i don't really know if i can believe your apology because i don't really know how to really perceive apologies from celebrities anymore in korea because a lot of the time they are it turns out like you know they apologize the day they're arrested and then it still turns out that they end up going to jail so like the idea of forgiveness is almost like a fluid thing in this fandom now because even if i forgive you maybe a fan standing next to me doesn't and so like there's no or or vice versa um i don't know it's just like really fascinating right now that like panda that i guess forgiveness and i guess this is the same thing with cancel culture it's like Mm -hmm. who who is allowed to you know or not allowed who like to I, as a human being who thinks that this person should be canceled, at what point can they come back? Like, uh, what's his name from Guardians of the Galaxy? James Gunn. Yes. So, like, can he still direct? I know people who say he can't. I know people who say he can't. Like, I feel like the idea of when, like, masses of people forgive is kind of almost becoming, like, not fic- fictional, but, like, mm-hmm. like I think there reality. was a lot of this in baseball also around mm. the steroids scandal. Um, and like, it also, it it was very variable depending on whether you liked the guy or not, you know, like Andy Pettit, I feel like was forgiven much more easily than say Barry Bonds or Roger Clemens or, you know, people who had, you know, 
abrasive, brash personas. Um, or A-Rod, because, like, nobody really liked A-Rod. And also threw jagged bits of wood at innocent catchers who were just trying to run to first base. Moving on. <laughs> Not a fan. <laughs> so, yeah, so there was a lot of, you know, back and forth among fans about, like, yeah, who who was forgiven and, like, you know, Fans tend to forgive, tended tended to forgive their own players. Probably, you know, like if you were a Giants fan, I'm sure you were much quicker to forgive Barry Bonds than literally anybody else. Yeah, and Yankee fans, I'm sure, were much quicker to forgive their own players. But it's still a good thing that Derek Jeter was never tainted by the steroid scandal, because like I don't think that New York could have handled that. <laughs> I would have been fine. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Yes, but you are not all of New York, Michal. It's not all about you. All right, well, that's up for debate. <laughs> any, other, any other forgiveness in fiction that we can think of? I keep on, like, thinking of things like Buffy and Spike, who mm. definitely did not deserve to be just, like, forgiven ever, and how he had to, like, redeem himself. But well, I mean, they kind of copped out with that, because they yeah. basically, they gave him the soul, which made him an entirely different person. So, like, the person who committed the crimes didn't exist anymore, so couldn't, you know, ask for forgiveness or be forgiven, because he well, just wasn't around. I think that's, I think that's kind of um, giving him, like, too much credit with the soul, because he, he, like, still is the same person. He just feels it a little more like in his soul uh but he definitely wasn't the same person who did that and like he felt guilt over it versus not having felt guilt over it beforehand but like but like if he had had soul in the first place would he have done it i don't know he was obsessed with her like he was obsessed with her i mean that's a really weird story arc any anyway (laughs) his spike i mean i think spike is a fantastic character and i think his arc as a as a person who is changing, I don't know if whatever words you want to use for it, you know, at first due to the the chip that gets put in his head and then uh, kind of the, the awareness that he's able to gain um, because of that impacts the way he acts when the chip stops working. Um, so to me, that's, that was a lot more interesting than, you know, whatever. But, but I do think that, that, that Whedon kind of poses like everything that Spike does, like he, you know, he, he has this incident. We're being very inconsistent. I'm being very inconsistent with spoilers this episode, but whatever. Spike <laughs> tries to rate Buffy. Sorry. So that's fun. Yes. Toward the end okay, of season six. If you don't know that at this point, you're not watching Buffy. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it happens to be Megan Whalen Turner is like so much smaller and it's like a much bigger part of the and story. And the spoiler arc. is part of the story. Exactly. Um, but, but, you know, what Spike does as his atonement is not, as far as I recall, in any way, apologizing to Buffy. No. It's going to get a soul and then kind of masochistically torturing himself, which was very romantic to me when I watched it the first time. (laughs) Well, that's the, that's what the same thing, like what you said in this, the Scarlet Letter, the guy, you know, who, who impregnated Hester, um, he, the Scarlet Letter is, you know, she had to wear an A, and then over the course of the book, you find out that basically he has he has been self-flagellating, literally, and has, like, carved an A into his own skin. Um, Not creepy at all. 
No, not at all. And like he just yeah, he beats up on himself and he like he is, you know, somewhat kind to Hester, you know, and you know, sort of tries to do what he can without giving himself away. Um to make her life a little bit easier but he you know there's obviously never like really an apology as far as i can remember yeah i don't remember enough i kind of was just throwing out out there wondering if there was a yeah i don't know i read it in 10th grade and i don't remember anything except for those details that i just mentioned not nice it was 10 well now that you bring up uh buffy i am I am reminded of the Angel plotline, that horrible, horrible show ruining Angel plotline. Where... Which one? <laughs> <laughs> well, the one that kind of starts it all, where, um, you know. I don't know, the, the one where Cordelia got pregnant? Uh, well, like, no, it's one. before that, where, where Connor is born. And I actually <laughs> oh love the storyline where Connor is born, like the actual thing with Darla and everything. I love that storyline. Um, yeah, no, like when it, when, it, when it starts out, and like then, you know, and even when he comes back as you know an older teen or whatever and he comes back from the hell dimension spoilers um (laughs) but like at that point you know you feel like there is so much potential and then everything just goes downhill but up till then up till then it's good (laughs) i i I sort of thought that the potential evaporated once uh wesley tossed him through a time dimension (laughs) um because well well, that's that's what i'm specifically Huh? I only watched the last season of Angel because I wanted to know what happened after Buffy, so I've never actually watched Angel. Oh my oh god, no, Angel's really Angel good. You so should watch better. Angel. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I mean, season five isn't bad, uh, but season three and four yeah, no, are where it gets five real. Is not, mm. Yeah, it's not um, top of its game, let's say that. Yeah, but um, I mean, it's funny because I do, it's been a long time since I watched Angel, watched Angel, but I do recall like there being an earlier plotline where Angel goes like super emo and like He's just killing people, and he's like bad guys. He doesn't he's outright like... kill people, but like he he didn't he, he like there's the evil law firm Wolfram and Hart, and he has the opportunity where he walks in when Darla and Drusilla are about to massacre everybody, um the entire like uh I don't know head brass or whatever top brass of the the law law firm, and he could stop them, but he's just like yeah, I just don't care. And he closes the door and he lets them all be massacred. Um, and like personally, when that happened, I was like, yes, <laughs> this is so much better. <laughs> I'm like, why do you have to be the hero and save the bad guys? Like, just just let them die, please. Yeah. But he didn't like outright kill them. But but at the same time, though, like I think Angel does, you know, and, and this, this causes great, uh, you know, pain and anxiety to Cordy and Wesley and and everybody who's left back at Angel Investigations and when Angel does snap out of it I don't know if he like explicitly apologizes but there was something that it it worked very well for me because he was like not right away back in the fold like yeah. he was on probation for sure with them. Yeah, they definitely were holding him at arm's length from what I can recall. Yeah, and like, that that worked like... really nicely for me, but then, mm-hmm. you know, you have this horrific plot line where Wesley, you know, he he believes he's doing the right thing, but he steals Angel's son and then Angel Oh, tries so you to didn't like emo and... Wesley plot line. I didn't mind emo Wesley. I thought he was himself, pretty great, <laughs> but I just didn't like what he was doing. But but the point the point is like you know, they don't ever doesn't 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 that season end with uh Wesley 
basically killing Angel by like throwing him in the ocean? Or does somebody else do that? Honestly, I cannot remember, and this is bothering. Um, honestly, me. for a five <laughs> a five season oh, yeah, series, a lot sank him in the me. ocean. Someone definitely sank him in the ocean. Yeah, maybe that was um, the bad guy. So maybe I'm maybe I'm you know casting aspersions on Wesley unfairly. I'm not remembering if Wesley was involved. But but I don't. Like he could have been like ever involved being, obliquely, like, but I don't remember. But I I don't recall there ever being like a a real apology for you know for this this horrific thing that's happened to the two of them you know and and uh, you know again wesley having his reasons but also you know not like being like oh yeah um sorry angel i i sort of murdered yeah. your son um that's sort of the trope of apology through action yeah of like, exactly i'm and gonna they- you know make it up to you by you know by helping you and and doing things and and sacrificing and doing all these other things, um, but never actually saying the words. Yeah, and I think a lot of that ends up, you know, playing out through um, through Fred in the end. Like the loss of Fred is oh, kind of Fred. You know, the 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 unifying thing. Joss Whedon's a monster. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, it it is interesting to me just kind of like looking back at this whole conversation how how much of this is like narrative. I think that was a really good point tomorrow about how we all kind of even in the real world create stories around apologies and you know even on YouTube we have like the apology video is now its own genre um its own cliche genre that and yeah it's all it's all really interesting um as a general rule, I would I would not recommend any of these um, tactics if you're actually trying to um, apologize to someone in real life. But you mean um, like throwing yourself in front of a bus is not a proper apology? No. Just say I'm sorry. <laughs> Are you talking about Mean Girls? Uh, well, I, I, that did come to mind, but like basically, you know, in order to demonstrate my true sorriness, I'm going to do some kind of ridiculous, you know, self-sacrificing act rather than just saying. I'm sorry. <laughs> I screwed up. If if you obviously, you know, we've we've come through we've come through a bunch of um fiction and real life here, but if you have other examples, we would love to hear them. Um definitely get in touch with us. Um you can also um I just want to give a shout out to 084 who left us a lovely comment on iTunes. You can also read a, leave us a comment on iTunes, a review. Um and we would appreciate your leaving five star uh, review. Yes, please, five stars. You um, can like leave, you can like tear us apart in the comments, but five stars help. I mean, also that would make me feel really sad, but I mean, yeah, don't. please don't tear us yeah. apart in the comments. We are fragile but but yes, saying, like, <laughs> it'd be better. It'd be if you want to leave us feedback, we'd appreciate it in the comment section rather than the stars, because the stars will just ruin our career forever, and you don't want to do that because you're yeah. a nice person who just wants to give us feedback, and we are grateful for feedback, but would like nice feedback if possible. Exactly. So if you're like, hey, I would give them five stars, but like they're really a four star podcast. Just give us five stars because it will mess up our algorithm on on Apple Podcasts. Um, but yeah, so 084 um, says, 
Uh, as a non-religious person, I find this podcast both informative and entertaining. Relating all the best things in pop culture to Jewish culture and faith is such a great way to learn and expand my horizons. All three hosts have great chemistry with one another and give a great mix of humor and insight. I really hope the podcast continues on. Go listen now. And we, that's so kind of you to say. Um, we really appreciate that. It's incredible to hear that people who aren't in our little circle are listening and enjoying the podcast. And um, that's that we have chemistry. Yeah, we have chemistry, guys. (laughs) I didn't have chemistry in high school, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. So if you would like to leave us a review on iTunes, we will very happily um, share it on the show. Um, We really appreciate everyone who's left us a comment. And as we will be recording more regularly now, we would appreciate, you know, you guys just stopping by and and saying like, hey, we like the new attitude and progress and stuff like that. Um, New attitude and progress? I mean, not really, but like, you know, (laughs) theoretically, (laughs) we still do have some fun things that are coming down the pipeline. So don't worry. We, we, We aren't, we aren't like lying to you guys. We have some stuff. Um... But in terms of us, um, Tamar, where can people find you on the internet? Um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Tamar Writes, and you can read my writing mostly at billboard.com. Awesome. And SM, how about you? Um, you can follow my public posts on Facebook, and you can look up my fiction on Amazon at amazon.com slash author slash SM Rosenberg. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Ink as Rain and my writing at Hypable.com. And of course, you can find our wonderful editor, uh, Jamie Bloomberg, at their website, jamberg.me. And you can find them on Twitter at Jamie underscore Bloomberg, which makes sense. That's a, that's a very solid uh, handle to have, Jamie. I approve. <laughs> um, for the Nice Jewish Fangirls, you can email us at NiceJewishFangirls at gmail.com. We really appreciate hearing from you and would love to get into nerdy discussions with you. You can also contact us on Facebook. Um, we get some messages there, which is really nice. Um, we're at Nice Jewish Fangirls. On Twitter, we're at Jewish Fangirls because there weren't enough characters to make us nice. Um, and uh, we might have some more arenas in which to contact us in the future that are coming up soon. We wish everyone a hearty Shana Tova. Have a wonderful new year. Shana Tova. Shana Tova. And live long and prosper, everyone. Bye. Well, speaking of things you don't use, what? <laughs> this is the worst what? transition what? ever. I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to ask you what your obsession is, sorry, hoping sorry that it's something that you will like. Yes. You'll be like, you go, I, found, Segway. I found this pen that is amazing and I use it all the time. Oh, what? uh, What's your current obsession tomorrow? You want to ask me that again? Sure. <laughs> and aside, which which you brought up. Gesundheit, <laughs> that was the most adorable sneeze ever. Thank you. <laughs> that was like a little puppy sneeze. <laughs> <laughs>